Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was a very strange affair that um, this huge hold at the middle of this extraordinarily expensive and consequential court process and you never quite know what was going through his head. Welcome to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. In this podcast, we talk with people connected to some of New Zealand's most serious crimes. We've covered murders, kidnappings and cold cases, but in this episode, we're going to look at the biggest white-collar crime this country has ever seen. When South Canterbury finance collapsed, the government spent more than $1.5 billion bailing it out. A year later, a story by journalist Matt Nippet kicked off the serious fraud office prosecution of the giant finance company. This is now 10 years ago and that saga dragged on for until, you know, it collapsed and then through the trial and various court actions. That was a five-year block. Um, but, you know, for one year of that time, I was just writing about South Canterbury Finance, <laughs> just two or three stories a week. It got to the point where, you know, it was such a big collapse and so much was coming out of the woodwork that I'd be getting three or four tips a day on the phone and the email and have to keep asking them like how much money was lost because if it's not more than five million bucks, I'm just not getting out of bed for it. Oh, my it. gosh. There was, um, <laughs> it was, yeah, there was, there was rot yeah, all the over the show. the of New Zealand journalism. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was quite a privilege to be able to just pick the eyes out of it because um, some, some of the stuff going on there was, was quite extraordinary. And at the centre of it was a man called Alan Hubbard. Who was he? Well, he was um, uh, a really interesting and I think distinctly New Zealand character. He was, um, at the time all this blew up, he was in his late 70s. And he uh, so he was born in 1928 and he was an accountant and he took over South Canary Finance, I think. No one's quite sure because it's so long ago, around the <laughs> 1960s. Before records began. Well, or if the records existed, there were paper that's long sort of... Uh, rotten, um, which again was part of the problem because Hubbard never really got into the digital age. Mm-hmm. Um, all his records were on paper. But um, over time, this uh, South Canary Finance had grown to be the company's largest finance company. Um, by some margin, it was you know three or four times bigger than any of the others. And sorry, Matt, just explain to people exactly what a finance company is and does. Well, so they finance companies do two things. One, they accept deposits from investors, and they were quite attractive for those on sort of fixed incomes because they would pay out, again, in a distinctly New Zealand fashion, that you would uh, buy bonds off them and they would pay a set interest rate every year. And you'd buy them for one, two or three year periods. So you'd make short-term investments. And on the other side, using that money that was taken from investors, they would uh, reinvest it, typically in, again, distinctly New Zealand story, into property investments, which, of course, raised the problem when your property investments were long. You know, uh, you'd invest and break ground, build something. You might not sell it for five or six years, but all the money coming in was short. So you had to rely on a constant cycle of new investors. And if there was any shake, uh, a disruption to the confidence of the market, um, it could all go south very, very quickly and cash could run out, which began to happen when the GFC 
sort of began to bite in 2007, 2008. Yeah, and and this wasn't the only finance company with problems. Uh, Later it was sort of decided really that these finance companies were not paying the level of interest commensurate with the risk that people were taking by investing in them, right? The whole model was pretty pretty stuffed. Well, that was it became quite obvious. People were wondering you know, why would you put your money with a, um, you know, blue chip bank that was paying 3 or 4% when instead you could put it with a finance company get 5 or 6. Mm. And people began to think of it as, as a sort of a, a risk-less premium. Mm. Um, you know, there was some, it was very difficult to raise warnings over, because when the property market was buoyant, um, these looked like great investments, you know. Finance companies would lend on a block of property, even if they did nothing with it and just lifted it as a hole in the ground, they would make money. Mm. But of course, you know, the you're right, um, South Gary Finance was one of many companies, but it was the largest and it was for a long time regarded as the, the best run, the most solid. I mean, the advertising explicitly said this is a, a heartland company run from Timaru, run by Hubbard, who lived a monastic life. Like, I mean, he, I think he drove a, like a 40-year-old VW Beetle. He lived in a very modest house. And they explicitly put themselves aside from, you know, wide boys in Auckland. Uh-huh. I think that's how their advertising characterised it. And, of course, once it fell over and we started looking through the loan book, it was... They were investing in pretty much the same stuff everyone else was, yeah. you know. Ridiculously speculative resorts in Fiji. They collectively lost hundreds of millions of dollars. They just ended up getting so much money coming in, and the good options for investments for them um, became a much smaller list. They had to go for bigger ones. Because, of course, these guys, were lent, they lent to property developers, typically secured by mortgages, but not sort of first-ranked mortgages like you get, you know, for your home from the bank. These were second- and third-ranked. So if anything went south, the big banks would get paid out first and then second-tier, then third-tier. So if things went bad... These finance companies could find themselves like losing quite a lot of the money they advanced. And and how significant was this this guy Alan Hubbard? Um, how important was he to the profile and reputation of South Canterbury Finance? I mean, when people put money into this company, were, did they feel like they were giving it to him? Oh, that was entirely. I mean, it was partly marketed on that, but also he was the owner and the chairman, and for a time, pretty much the CEO as well. I mean, he was he was South Canterbury Finance, mm. and before things went south, I mean, he was uh, you know being talked about as deserving of a knighthood. It's worth six hundred and fifty million dollars, I think, according to MBR. Um, he was wildly popular in Timaru. Unlike many of the other sort of the white collar criminals I looked at, I mean, his motivations were far more complex. He wasn't in it for p- personal gain. You know, he wasn't taking the money for himself and spending it on wine, woman and song. He was uh, effectively giving it away in charity. So there's one example, I think one of the first things I started looking at was his involvement with Presbyterian Support Services South Canterbury, where he was uh, the charity's single biggest donor, but also he was chair of their finance committee and decided where all the donations went. And he directed the charity to invest in South Canterbury Finance. It was very, very circular, so he was donating money to the charity and then effectively giving it back to himself. You know, the charity would get interest on the side, but, I mean, of course, when South Canary Finance went under, suddenly the charity's position became uh, somewhat shaky. Uh, you forgot to mention the honorary doctorate that he got as well <laughs> from Lincoln <laughs> University in 2006, and I've got a quotation here. He was, uh, you know, he was really a hero of um, South Island and of New Zealand, certainly in South Canterbury. So when did you get a sniff that there was something going on that needed investigating? Well, I'd, um, at that point, I think, because I'd been worked through several newsrooms up at that point, and only just, I think, two months before South Canterbury went under in 2009, had become a business reporter. You know, I hadn't really done hard news up at that point, let alone business. And 
it was clearly an enormous story. I mean, this was a multi-billion dollar company that had gone under. Um, and because of this, the retail deposits guarantee scheme that had been announced here before, the government suddenly had to cover all these investors. So there was, Treasury wrote out a you know, nearly $2 billion check overnight. And then there was suddenly this quest to how much can we recover? How bad's the rot here? I think I started looking at it the first week and went under, did a story there, then decided to chase up on references to the company's single biggest loan, which was to um, a hotel across town here in Auckland, uh, formerly known as the Hyatt. You know, a nice five-star hotel. And it was said there was, you know, 40 or $50 million worth of impaired loans there. And I thought, well, let's just have a look. Maybe we can tell the story of South Canterbury Finance as to how they got in such a big hole mm-hmm. in, in this big fancy Auckland building, which, of course, was quite different to the marketing they were proposing, which was, you know, we, we lend to farmers and safe, solid developments, and it's all in the provinces and it's heartland values. And here we had five-star Auckland Hotel that's an absolute money sink. First thing I tried figuring out is um, who actually owned the hotel, and that was a wildly convoluted story. I, there was multiple shell companies where sort of, you know, the nominal owner changed repeatedly, and then the owner of the company on the title, uh, the shares for that had been moved around a lot. Um, so at some point it looked like it had, the company had actually been owned by South Canterbury Finance and Alan Hubbard. And then just before they entered the Retail Deposits Guarantee Scheme, it had got moved to a guy called Peter Symes, who... Um, I couldn't figure out who he was. But um, I did get his address from the company's office because he was the sole director and shareholder of the company owning the hotel. And I called him up and um, he was quite surprised because he'd never been to the hotel in his life. Surprised he, to hear that he owned Uh Yeah, yeah, totally surprised. <laughs> he was... Um, he described himself... Uh, he was quite... It's strange. There's people like this n- never normally talk like this. But uh, he basically said, oh, look, you know, I just helped my brother-in-law out and I asked who his brother-in-law was and he said it was Ed Sullivan who was uh, Alan Hubbard's lawyer and the f- director of South Canterbury Finance and this guy Peter Simons was suffering terminal cancer his business background was a meat work- being a meat worker I think he was 67 at the time um, and he basically admitted to me that he got involved in owning the Hyatt Hotel because there were too many people from one company involved like South Canterbury was too close to the deal and there was an issue around declaring it as a related party so they just got um, Symes to front it. And I actually laughed during that interview because I asked him, you know, aren't you, aren't you worried? You know, do you really think you're an independent director here? And he goes, well, well I'm not. I'm not a related party. Go, like, you literally are related. Your brother-in-law is running the company. Um, and we ended up getting a picture of the guy and put that story on the front page. We didn't quite... I didn't quite connect the dots as to the timing and why that mattered at that point, but it seemed extremely weird that you'd have this prime Auckland building with tens of millions of dollars that also owes South Canterbury Finance tens of millions of dollars and likely will lose them a fair chunk of that because, again, they ranked behind, I think, ASB Bank or Westpac at the point. <coughs> at that point was uh, first ranked. And, yeah, that created a, an enormous firestorm. Like, I've never... I don't think I've ever gone through anything like that for a news story before. The, the, you, you publishing this story created a, a big reaction. Yeah, I mean, it was... We had... Hmm, how do we put this? Within a week, we were served with a search warrant from the Serious Fraud Office wanting my notes and recordings of that interview with Mr Symes. Well, why, why hadn't they done that work themselves? <laughs> um, it had only gone under a couple of weeks ago. and I mean... You report on the SFO enough and you realise they're not particularly nimble. 
and typically it takes a bit of nudging to get them to open a case and then it will take them a year, year and a half to get to the point where they can charge someone and then the trial's another year after that. So, I mean, maybe they would have got to it eventually. But um, they were, you know, I think they're also particularly concerned that given Symes had said he was terminally ill, that this guy would die before he could um, give evidence, which turned out he did. Mm-hmm. And I think I was the only one that ever got an interview with him. I mean, there was some informal... Sorry, there was some correspondence through his lawyer over the next couple of years where he basically admitted that, yes, he did sign forms from his brother-in-law, and but he was indemnified and didn't think he did anything wrong. And so we, that was enough of a mess. Oh, so they came looking for you, and you hid. Well, yeah, because, I mean, there's this... I mean, I was working NBR at the time. <clears throat> hid from a serious fraud office. Well, yeah, well, not quite. Yes, I guess it was hiding out. Um <laughs> But there was a you know principle of media freedom there, and our boss was Barry Coleman at the time, who was very keen on crusading on this sort of stuff. I mean, I wasn't too fussed about that interview being made public because it was all on the record, and we put the best bits on the front page of the newspaper. But Barry was keen for us to show that we wouldn't roll over when poked by authority, and we couldn't appeal it on the basis of law. So we um, just ref- we re- missed the deadline intentionally by 24 hours. And when they came around to pick it up... Um, I went downstairs and hid in Sal's pizza, which was just beneath the office until the SFO agents left empty-handed. Um, it was quite all right. I've got an early dinner, I guess. <laughs> OK. So that, that's one little mess, this Hyatt, and it wasn't the only one, right? There were messes like this all over New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, there were some subsidiary frauds going on that were sort of unrelated to the South Canary Finance Management, but because there was this river of money flowing out of SCF... Um, some people took advantage of it. So another one I looked at was um, there was an IT company called Data South based in Christchurch, and they offered their clients um, like finance for you know buying computer gear. And Gavin Bennett, the um, head of that company, realised um, it was really easy to get these finance agreements, and you could put any company name on it in any amount, and South Canterbury would pay it. And they'd be for short-term loans, a couple of years. But if you did enough of them, and then every couple of years did a bunch more, you could sustain quite a large income. So I think that's about seven years before he got caught. And he only got caught after South Canterbury Finance collapsed, and suddenly the taps were turned off. And when the receivers tried chasing up all these loans and found the customers didn't exist. But he was amazing in that he... um, used this small company, he set up a satellite office in Sydney that did no business. Sole asset was an apartment overlooking the Harbour Bridge that he um, lived in. And then he spent all the money on, how do we put this, um, fancy woman, I guess would be a way to put it. He like invested in a lingerie startup uh, for some woman. He met at a strip club, became really well known in the Sydney party scene, including the gossip pages for... You know, being that guy that would blow $10,000 on champagne just, just for laughs. And, yeah, I mean, he did a lot of time in prison for that. I think he's out now. But, um, I mean, the loans he defrauded South Canterbury out of totaled like $103 million, I think, in the end. Of course, a lot of them were repaid by proceeds of other loans, but the overall losses were more than $20 million just for that one guy. OK, so unsurprisingly, things fell over for South Canterbury Finance, and um, you mentioned this deposit guarantee scheme. Can you give us a quick nutshell of what that was? Well, that was sort of the when the GFC was done to bite. In Wall Street, you saw the investment banks start falling over. In New Zealand, it was the finance companies, and they started falling over from 2007. And during the 2008 election campaign, there was a huge degree of panic because Australia decided their equivalent sector, they were going to guarantee the deposits to stop people pulling all their money out at once and everything collapsing in a heap. 
And so Helen Clark had to decide effectively over one weekend to whether or not to implement a similar scheme. And if they didn't, all the investors in New Zealand would have pulled their money out of the New Zealand companies and put them in Australia. I mean, that you'd be stupid not to. Um, so that underwrote like four or five billion dollars worth of investor deposits and created this huge moral hazard because the finance companies, so investors knew they didn't need to worry about risk at this point. You could just throw money at these finance companies, even if you knew they were complete rubbish, knowing that if it all went bad, the government would bail you out. And you know, oh, and it just resulted in a huge river of payments out of the Treasury. And so when South Canterbury went under, paid out $1.5 billion, receivers came in. After a couple of years, they clawed back about $900 million. So it ended up costing the taxpayers $600 million in the end. And the SFO prosecution based, was based in, almost entirely on uh, arguing that the South Canary finance directors, particularly Hubbard, defrauded the government by cooking the books before they entered the scheme. And if the government knew the truth about it, they never would have let them come in and therefore would have saved the taxpayer $900 million. I got a message from Rory on email. He says a contextual comment from John Tamihere at the time of the bailout that it was equal to all treaty settlements to that date anyway, which speaks volumes uh, about the perception, attitude, representation and politics around finance and the support for rich and relatively rich versus support and help for systemic recovery of Māori. And that's just one particular angle on this, but to get an idea of how much money went into this thing. Um, just out of interest, by the way, and, and you know, you talk about Hubbard never really joining the digital world. There was a, often a bit of a clash when he tried to invest in something new with his old school ways, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, that was quite amazing, that one, yeah. So he um, he got approached uh, to help finance that film and was, uh, you know, told to get an impressive interest rate and a share of the profits. Um, and, of course, you know, the film, the trilogy was an absolute smash hit, you know, cost... Three four hundred million and ended up pulling in billions in ticket sales, um, but of course the Hollywood studios through creative accounting um, sort of produced a balance sheet saying, "Oh, sorry, there's no there's no profit here. It was all dealing up with marketing costs and the like." And Hubbard, um, you know, quite a master master mover of the balance sheet himself, um, had been outdone by the by the wizards of Hollywood, and there was um, he, he at some point stand he was so incensed with the Hollywood studios, he wanted to buy shares in the film company so he could fly to Los Angeles and go to their annual general meeting and ask questions about it, about what happened to his share of the Lord of the Rings profits. Um, but he was talked out of it because it, it just wouldn't have worked. I mean, uh, it would, mind you, it would have made for a great film <laughs> scene, wouldn't it? <laughs> Old man Hubbard, sort of... Um, I don't know if he'd have his dialysis machine with him or not, but, um, you know, asking questions of Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Have you worked out how that happens, by the way, how movie companies manage to claim a loss on even the biggest billion-dollar hits? Well, yeah. I mean, it's fairly obvious. You just uh, push more costs into a successful project until all the profit's gone. So all your marketing costs, all your overheads, you dump every single cost possible in there. But also it's the same strategy used to reduce your income taxes, right? Anyone, No one wants to report making a huge actual profit because then IRS or IRD will be all over you. So... There are ways of um, you know, loading as much cost, particularly tax-deductible stuff, uh, in there as possible. But, I mean, it's, it's a real art, and some of the smartest minds in finance, you know, can't unpick it. And, you know, even Peter Jackson got done over in this way, too. I think his director agreement 
when he did Lord of the Rings, he took a discount, but he'd get a share of the profits, and they tried pulling the same thing on him, and he was in courts for years, mm. wangling for his share too. Speaking of being in courts for years, how was it covering this SFO trial? Well, I mean, it was in Timaru, so it was became impossible to get down there. I mean, I was down there for the beginning and a bit at the end, but it went on and on and on, and it was only it only started in 2014. And it was about six months later that it wrapped, because it was 12 weeks, but it went too long, and then they had a huge break in the middle. Um, and it became increasingly obvious during the prosecution that the SFO had overplayed their hand. You know, their central contention that the retail deposits guarantee scheme was sort of the vehicle for fraud fell over when they didn't present any witnesses from Treasury who said, you know, if we'd known what Hubbard was doing with his related party reporting, we wouldn't have given him the money. They never showed up. I suspect that's because um, Treasury would have said, well, it was a political decision and we had to cover the finance sector and South Canterbury Finance was the largest company. And effectively, the whole point of the scheme was to cover companies like South Canterbury. So, you know, as long as they had the, um, the, the credit rating, it was probably enough. And so the central block of charges, um, all the... Uh, directors got off. But of course we had this enormous problem just before trial where Hubbard died and you know he's the, he's the key player f- for all of it and him and his wife were involved in a really serious car crash um, leading the trial to basically just be um, Ed Sullivan, the other director and the CEO and another director basically pointing the finger at a dead man saying the old man did it. And so it was all, it was a very strange affair that um this huge hole at the middle of this extraordinarily expensive and consequential court process, and you'd never quite know what was going through his head because, of course, he'd been buried for years by then. Mm. Could it happen again? Oh, it could always happen again. I mean, once you get people with money um, and wanted to be creative with it, I mean, white-collar crime, the SFO's caseload hasn't dropped really in good times or bad. Um, In terms of these specific sort of finance company prospectus fraud, I don't think so. Things are far tighter. The um, directors now see that they can go to jail for um, signing off things without reading them, which is a good thing. I mean, it's not great for the likes of Doug Graham, who had to be the test cases to show the rest of the um, potential directors what the consequences are for for not doing your job. But, you know, wherever there's people and money, there'll always be fraud. Uh, and not not a very popular job at the moment, being di- director of a finance company. No, no, that whole sector um, never really recovered. I mean, there's bits of it floating around. I mean, it's a bit of a problem when property developers, when particularly the government puts in restrictions on mortgage lending and developers need finance to build something new and suddenly there's no second tier to borrow from. You know, that may hamstring... Uh, some development, but yeah, no one really wants to be a finance company director, and certainly no former politicians want to lend their name. Um, you know, when the consequences of a fall from grace can really wipe out your entire legacy. Or former newsreaders. Um, <laughs> yes. What do we learn from this? Um, what did we learn from this? Well, you know, your fundamental business model has to make sense, and if you're borrowing short and lending long, inevitably you're going to run into problems. And secondly, as an investor, you can't just chase the highest returns. I mean, you have to be aware that if someone's offering you more than the bank, it probably means it's less safe in the bank, and you cannot put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, some of the stories we heard from investors throughout this, not obviously not from South Canterbury, which was bailed out, but some of the ones that fell over before 
the deposit guarantee scheme went in. It was terrible. They put their entire retirement savings in with the likes of Hanover or Blue Chip. And, oh, people, diversify, please. I mean, you don't want your future ruined by one bad man. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes of this series on the RNZ Podcasts page. It's also on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Follow Crimes NZ so you don't miss an episode, and if you enjoyed it, please give it a rating so others can find it too. If you're looking for another podcast, try the RNZ Podcasts page on the website. Only human and voices are two good ones that portray remarkable people. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.